everybody. How are we all doing? I'm Michael. I'm joined by Alex, as always. And we're here with an episode of Fallen Through Potholes, a podcast about video game plot lines and how they have a tendency to go off the rails. Alex, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Good, good. I'm doing I'm doing pretty good as well. Nice new year. Spring is out in the air, it feels like. It's actually like 40 degrees outside instead of being like 20, so you yeah. really can't complain too much. Yeah, it's a nice pickup. And I presume you had a pretty good Christmas. I did. It was quite good. Saw some family. Yeah, good. Me too, me too. Had a had a very good Christmas. Had a had a nice happy new year as well. Except for one slight issue. This mm-hmm. is supposed to be our Christmas episode. Ah. <laughs> ah. Uh, uh. And unfortunately, uh, I did get an episode recorded, but due to every possible audio issue that could possibly happen, including muddy audio, uh, corruption, crashes, and what have you, it ended up being unusable. So instead, we're doing that episode today. All right. <laughs> but it's going to be a good one. I'm really excited about this. Uh, today, we're not going to be talking about a video game plotline. But rather, we're going to be talking about a pivotal moment in video game history. So we've got a new uh, extra episode today. And it's one that uh, I'm very, very excited about because it's a, it involves a segment of history that is not only very important, but it's like rarely talked about. Mm. Like, I think most people don't actually know the story. But I want to start off, Alex, by asking you, uh, how do you feel about a child's joy on Christmas Day? Do you like... You know, like watching like Nintendo 64 video and whatnot, seeing like how that kid goes crazy. Like, how do you feel about that? Generally favorable. I, I think that needs to be encouraged. Yeah, yeah. It's exciting to see kids be like super happy on Christmas and whatnot, you know? Yeah. Yeah, a little uh, jubilation on Christmas Day. Good thing. It is. It is. Uh, so quick follow-up question. How do you feel about seeing that joy crushed by technology? I get a sick pleasure of almost equal measure out of it. Ooh, you're going to love this episode then. Yeah. Because <laughs> this episode's about, you know, children's Christmases being ruined. <laughs> Sweet. Yes. <laughs> uh, it's Conker's Pocket Tales all over again. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to be quite that good, but it's going to be close. It's going to be close. Uh, oddly enough, it's going to involve Microsoft in a way, so, you know, kind of close enough. Oh, nice. Good. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we get into the meat of what this is about, uh, Alex... I want to ask you a question about your gaming rig. Specifically, like, mm-hmm. what do you got in it? Um, so my rig, let's see, graphics card I know is a uh, RTX 2080. Mm-hmm. Uh, processor is a Ryzen 7, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, 16 gigabytes of RAM DDR3, I want to say. I put All this stuff is like three or four years old, so mm. it leaves my head about as soon as I make it. Ah, I see. I see. Well, no, that's fair. That's fair. It's it's a lot of hardware I personally haven't heard of, but I'm very concerned, Alex, because mm-hmm. it sounds like you're missing an important component. Yeah. What component is that? Uh, you you didn't say what your sound card is. Um. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The the sound card is uh um. Yeah. Plus, you want to get in, like to like the most important like BBSs out there. What's your network card in there? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, totally. The network card is a, is a, is a uh, um, uh, Linksys N509. <laughs> hmm, yeah, that sounds really weird. I, I feel like I'm in some sort of time warp. I'm going to look over at my desk here, my fun little calendar. It's, it's a Dilbert uh, calendar. Uh-huh. You know, 
Matt Dilbert, he's a real funny guy, you know, Boy, his boss. Yeah. Hmm. All right, let's kind of just kind of flip through here and, uh, oh, this doesn't seem right. He works at a tech company now? He just, his tie is gone? He has like a lanyard? Scott Adams believes what? Oh, oh, I see. It's not actually 1994. It's 2021. And as this tortured bit is alluding to, Nowadays, if you buy a computer, you can be reasonably assured it's going to run like software. You're not going to need things like sound cars or like bespoke network cars or anything like that. Yeah. Although Good. I will say I do have a sound card and a Wi-Fi card and probably maybe an Ethernet network card in a box under my bed of just oh, old nice. computer parts. So I do have those things. They just aren't. <laughs> in use anymore you, you, yeah because they're not necessary well wi-fi no. car could be but the rest of those definitely definitely not because at a certain point companies decided that computers should be friendly to the average consumer back in the 90s they sure as hell wasn't <laughs> no no see nowadays even if uh, you have a computer that like is like brand new out of the box. If you buy like software for that system, you could be reasonably assured that it's going to run. Like even if that software isn't made for the system, like let's say you get like software that's for like a Mac and you want to like run like Windows on it or something like that, you could do that. Uh, you can emulate old DOS programs very easily. And even if you get software that's like says it's for Mac or for Linux or for Windows, a lot mm -hmm. of that software nowadays is able to auto-detect what OS you're running, what operating system you're running, and automatically download and install the correct version of that onto the onto your operating system, onto your computer. Right. And it works more or less flawlessly. Mm -hmm. And this doesn't matter if you build your own machine or buy a pre-built one. It's simply easy to have a computer in 2021. Yep, yep. You know when it wasn't a good time to have a computer? I've kind I of already say, spoiled this. I want to say 1994. <laughs> You'd be correct. The 90s in general. Yeah, yeah, the 90s in general. Because unlike now, you could have the most state-of-the-art machine and could not reasonably expect to run everything at 100% compatibility. Now, there were many reasons for this, but there was one very big reason, and this mostly pertains to PC gaming, but you, mm -hmm. you could extrapolate this out further. See, PC gaming back then, if not video gaming in general, was like a Cold War-style arms race, like, mm -hmm. even more so than it is now. And what I mean by this is because many concepts we take for granted nowadays, like, say, 3D graphics, were brand new to the at-home consumer. Right. And a, t and a ton of companies were trying to get in on this by releasing their own add-on hardware. Uh, many of these products would do, like, one aspect really well. And all of them were trying to one-up their competition, whether it was being like, hey, this is the most powerful card. This is the cheapest card. This is the most compatible, or claiming they're all three. Mm -hmm. To give you an example, let's say it's 1995. And you wanted to buy one of the biggest, baddest video cards from a hot new company called NVIDIA. So you wow. put down... Yeah, right? So you put down $450 on the NVIDIA NV1, the latest and greatest in quad-based 3D accelerated graphics. Then a few months later, a new graphics API comes out that pushes everyone to make their games using polygons built out of tries or triangles mm -hmm. instead of quads, which is what this card is supposed to do. <laughs> and your card is now instantly obsolete. Congrats. You, congrats. You get to buy a new, very expensive card. PC gaming in the 90s sucked. It was yeah. great. That card, though, actually was really good for um, 
playing Saturn games, though, because the Saturn mm. was actually a quad-based uh, system. Right. One of had- many outdated decisions the Saturn launched with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that's the hardcore PC gaming market, and most users didn't bother to spend hundreds of dollars on computer parts that would otherwise be obsolete. Instead, most people, particularly families with small children, were buying pre-built desktop machines from companies such as Compaq, mm-hmm. IBM, Hewlett-Packard, and the like. These all-in-one machines were supposed to be capable of doing everything an American family needed, from doing their finances, surfing the very early internet, and the like, while being, for the most part, stable and less, bro- less prone to breaking or becoming immediately obsolete. Right. I mean, they were still running Windows 95, but... Yeah, yeah, so no guarantees. However, these machines did come with two caveats. One is that they were often terrible for game. Mm. As they didn't chase the latest technology, they often weren't the most compatible. And two, the price for all-in-one stability was steep. So, Alex, I found a set of flyers from December of 1994 for various computer stores that kind of highlight this fact. Okay. And I want to ask you, uh, what do you think the average price for a computer was back then? Uh, like for one of these all-in-one machines or for a more... Uh, all in one machine, yeah. Um, so for ninety four money, I'm gonna say like eight hundred dollars. Oh, if it was eight hundred dollars, it would be a steal. Unfortunate. Yeah, the cheapest computers around that time were typically about thirteen hundred dollars. Oof. Oh, it gets worse because the average price was actually around like sixteen hundred dollars. But Alex, let's say you're a fan of Apple. All right, you uh-huh. want that new Macintosh. Uh, Funny enough, at this time, I was a fan of Apple. Yeah, they, they were solid computers. Uh, yep. Bad news for you, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Apple tax was as real then as it is now. Yeah. <laughs> and you could be paying anywhere between 2000 to $4,000 for the latest product. Yeah. $4,000 in 90s money for an Apple. Yeah, that's not very viable. Doesn't it seem is- like... I, I forget how much that comes out to. I think it's somewhere around ten grand nowadays. It, yeah. It's, oh, God. I, I think that math might be slightly off. I think I might, I might be thinking of inflation from the 80s, but still, it's a lot right. more expensive than you would think. For From a gaming standpoint, for access to, I don't know, a fifth of video games out there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because not many of them supported Mac OS at that no. time. They did not. They were all making their games in MS-DOS. And yeah, yeah, it, it was a uh, it would be a bad idea if you bought an Apple for gaming around this time. Yeah. Kind of a bad idea to buy an Apple for gaming nowadays, but a little bit. Yeah, they're better now, at least. Now, before I move on from this point, though, I want to clarify that I didn't mean to say that building a gaming PC in the 90s was cheaper. It wasn't. Mm. But you could typically get more bang for your buck for the trade off of a less stable machine overall. Right. But by 1994, this did start to change. PCs were becoming cheaper. Sales started to balloon, and companies took notice of this. More and more of these machines were ending up in the homes with small children, and wherever there are small children, there's an opportunity to sell them things. True. Particularly video games. In 1994, both a popular new PC and a video game based upon a popular film would combine to create such a mess. Uh... It would change PC gaming development forever. I know what we're talking about. Yeah, we're talking about how the Lion King ruined Christmas and led to the creation of DirectX. <laughs> yes. Oh, it's so good. This is my favorite. Oh, it's such a good story. It's so good. And one thing I love about it is that 
we're, we're going to get into this in a little bit, but people mm. get the facts about the story wrong, like, mm. so often. And it, despite it being such a pivotal moment. Yeah. And there's not really a whole lot of history about this. We're going to be talking a lot about, like, the history of Direct X in this. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it literally comes from, like, one person. Because the, they're the only he's the only person who's going to get interviewed <laughs> over the next 20 years or so. It's kind of ridiculous. Wow. Yeah. But it's, it is very important because Direct X is incredibly important. Yeah. Severely important. Direct X is still what powers PC gaming to this day. It powers the Xbox. Mm-hmm. Modern PC architect. Well, okay, modern. P- I was about to say modern PC architecture doesn't exist without DirectX, and that's not quite true. But it, modern PC architecture is going to be heavily influenced by the direction DirectX takes. Yeah. So it's incredibly important. So because of that, we're obviously going to be talking about Microsoft. But there's going to be three major players in this story, and we're going to start off not with Microsoft, but rather with Disney. Always a good place to start. Oh yes. <laughs> They're the reason this shenanigans get started in the first place. So, before they became a monolithic media empire capable of crushing anything it wishes, in the 1990s, it was a slightly smaller monolithic media (laughs) empire that had just escaped potential bankruptcy and acquisition in the 80s. Now, this was in large part due to two things. The installation of media moguls and chief drama queens, Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg as the head of Disney, uh, Eisner being the CEO, and Jeffrey Katzenberg being the head of the motion picture division at Disney. Mm. Now, the second was the successful revitalization of Disney's movie production under Katzenberg, particularly their animated movies, starting with the mixed animated live-action Who Framed Roger Rabbit and arguably culminating in 1991's Beauty and the Beast, Mm. the first and I believe only animated film to ever be nominated for a Best Picture Oscar. Right, because after that happened, the Academy said, there's no way we're giving a fucking cartoon Mm -hmm. an Oscar for Best Picture, so make a new category. (laughs) We're going to make the Best Animated Picture Ghetto, a.k.a. the the Pixar Award. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, honestly, very disappointing, because... Yeah. Turns out, though, there's quite a few years where I would honestly say an animated movie was the best movie, but... Yeah, more than more than a couple. Yeah, more than a couple. Now, there was something else that was important to this era of Disney. This was the era where their need to monetize and capitalize on everything was at its strongest. Mm. Something that's kind of hard to believe, I know. Yeah, for real. But it really was. This resulted in many things, but the most important for our story is that it meant otherwise closely guarded Disney IPs were being licensed to video game companies. Like, this was around the time that, like... um. Uh, the Disney Vault was opened up, and like films like Pinocchio were released on VHS. Mm. And a big reason for this is because um, Eisner's uh, compensation was tied into Disney's profits. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, so that's why the like the Disney stores got expanded. Um, mm. Bad animated sequels such as Cinderella Three, Cinder Harder uh... got released. <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> and this extended to video games. Oh, go ahead. I was gonna say, apparently, Cinderella Three kind of slaps. Yeah, I actually heard it's pretty good. <laughs> that That's like the time travel one, I think. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, I actually, I actually kind of want to see it one of these days. A little bit, yeah. But yeah, so when it comes to video games, though, this actually was kind of a good thing. Yeah. Because these IPs were licensed to companies such as Capcom and Sega. And they developed some of the best games of this generation, such as Sega's Castle of Illusion and uh, you know Capcom's DuckTales. Mm-hmm. Excellent games. 
But the game that is most important to our story is the 1993 game Aladdin, based upon the movie of the same name and released by Sega on their own Sega Genesis console. Mm-hmm. Alex, have you ever played that game? I have, yes. Yeah, what do you think of it? Uh, pretty fun. Uh, controls very well. It's mm. it's just sort of fun to play. I don't think I got very far. It's not an easy game, certainly. No. Uh, I, I'm more of a fan of Capcom's Aladdin, personally, but that's just because, mm-hmm. as a kid, that's what I played. Right, yeah. I, but, I don't know if I've played the Capcom one. It's it's a fun little platformer. Yeah. Um, But I did appreciate Aladdin, specifically because Aladdin looked great. Yeah. Yeah, visually, like, that sprite work's amazing. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason for this, because unlike previous games that Disney had licensed out, this one was different in that Disney was heavily involved. Mm-hmm as it was supposed to be released alongside the movie Aladdin. The other reason was because Sega around this time was kind of miffed at people thinking that the Super Nintendo, their competitor on the market, was more powerful. Mm-hmm. Because this, it, the Super Nintendo was able to have put out more uh, more colors on screen at once, mm. uh, despite the fact that, honestly, the Genesis had more powerful hardware underneath. Like, it was right. able to push sprites, like, just heavier in general. Right. So this was their way of being like, no, look at how cool our system is. And to be fair, it, it worked. Mm-hmm. Now, how they accomplished this is that Disney provided a team of 10 animators who hand drew, drew all the animations and artwork present in the game. Wow. Yeah. And these were then scanned and converted into sprites, which is why it looks so smooth. Mm, okay. Like it's a very, yeah. it's a similar process to like what Donkey Kong Country did in Super Nintendo, mm-hmm. except, you know, they used like 3D computer graphics and then scanned those into sprites. Right. And same thing happened. It resulted in a visually striking game. And a very successful game, selling over 4 million copies and getting good praise for the visuals and gameplay. Mm-hmm. But there's going to be a consequence of the success. Mm-hmm. You see, Disney realized there was even more money to be made if they cut out their licensees. <sighs> <laughs> and you see, Disney said, hey, we own what we think are the most important things in these games, which is the actual license, and we employ the animators. Right. So we're going to go alone. And so they did sign a loan publishing and co-development deal with Virgin Interactive, but otherwise they started developing their own games. Now, as they started this, all they needed was a hot new IP that the kids would really love in order to help launch this new software development direction they were going in. Now, they thought it was going to be 1995's Pocahontas, a movie that Jeffrey Katzenberg was convinced was going to win a a Best Picture Oscar for them, but it wasn't. Instead, it was 1994's The Lion King. Mm. Alex, what's your thoughts on The Lion King? The movie? Yeah. Great movie. Love it. Same. Absolutely love that movie. Absolutely love it. It's one of my favorite animated movies of all time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, kind of kind of like defining as a childhood experience in movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Like the opening sequence in that is like still visually striking to this day. It's mm-hmm. yeah, one of those just best crafted movies. Yeah. Uh, amazing soundtrack. Mm -hmm. Elton John absolutely killed it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So The Lion King, a movie that's about how monarchies are good, eating your subjects (laughs) is also good, and how some creatures deserve to be oppressed was a huge hit, grossing nearly a billion dollars over its entire lifetime. Um, In its first year of release, it uh, earned about $250 at the box office and actually earned the most money um, for the year 1994 uh, out of any movies, uh, beating out Forrest Gump by a million dollars. Damn. Yeah, which, by the way, Forrest Gump, $249 million. That's a ridiculous amount. Yeah. It led to two bad spinoff movies, a really good Broadway show, and way too much merchandise as a whole. 
Yeah. It was, <laughs> it was also obviously ripe for video game, and a newly branded Walt Disney Computer Software got started on two projects. The first is the one that I think most people people are going to be familiar with. A 2D platformer built in a similar fashion to Aladdin, with all the artwork starting out as hand-drawn animation. This was, the, of course, The Lion King, which was released for the Super Nintendo Genesis uh, Game Boy, Game Gear, mm -hmm. Amiga, and MS-DOS. The second, though, is a game called the Disney Animated Storybook, colon, The Lion King. Yeah. Oh, I remember the animated storybooks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to be a long-running series, which after we get finished with this story, you will be very surprised by. <laughs> so this is a game that was going to be targeting the personal computer market, and it seemed like a safe bet, as the personal computer was now finding its way into the homes of the everyday American family, once mm -hmm. again, many of which had small children. Now, a big reason for this, though, was the introduction of cheap PCs from a little company called Compaq. Mm-hmm. Alex, have you ever heard of Compaq? I have heard of Compaq. I don't think I've ever used one of their products. That's or at least not very surprising. It. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I, I don't think I've ever owned one of their products. I've probably used one of their products mm. at some point. Yeah, I, I can totally believe that, because they were all over the place. Um, I had a Compaq Presario at home when I was mm. growing up, for instance. Mm -hmm. a very ubiquitous company that's uh, now defunct after being acquired yeah. by Hewitt Packard in 2003, uh, which, uh, by the way, Hewitt Packard also doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. But for a short time, they were the computer company, selling a wide range of rugged and often cheaper computer products. Now, the history is fascinating, and a lot of this comes from Open, which is a book by the founders of Compaq, uh, talking about their rise in the 80s, uh, talking about how they were founded in 1982 and how the company made a big name for himself. And they did this by being by building itself as a solid alternative to IBM, mm. which at the time was the biggest home computer manufacturer. Right. Now, how they did this was novel, and they did this in two ways. The first is that they created a brand of portable computers, which I don't know if you've ever seen a portable computer, Alex. They're the precursor to laptops. Right. Uh, they're not really portable. <laughs> yeah, they, they were. <laughs> they can be moved. Yes, they're portable in the same way a concrete slab is portable. Mm. You could pick one up, but it's not gonna. You're not gonna have a fun time with it. Yeah. Now these things were rugged, though. You could like they famously like dropped one before a presentation. It worked perfectly, despite that. Mm. And like the idea is like the reason why it's called a portable is you could pick it up, move it somewhere, and plug it in, and it would just work. Right. And these eventually spun off into what would eventually become you know laptops. Mm -hmm. So they built these things and did a very good job with them. The problem is, though, is that when you build your compu like own computer back in the 80s, uh, they all had their own bespoke standards to them. They had their own bespoke BIOS files. Uh, the way their hardware like talked to each other, the hardware drivers, were all different from company to company. Right. And it's made it a problem when you were developing software. You see, if you're making software, you had to make it for all these different configurations. So what companies did instead is that they would only build configure like software for the biggest configurations. So that'd be like IBM, uh, mm -hmm. Tandy, um, Coleco, etc. So it didn't matter then if you made a really great computer product. If you were new on the market, you were not going to have software for it. If you didn't right. have software, you didn't have a company. Right. So what they did is they did something that a lot of other companies tried but completely failed. They reversed engineered the IBM BIOS 
clean room style. Yeah, complete clean room style. So they did it legally. Mm. And because of that, they were able to ensure that their computers were 100% compatible with all IBM software. Given IBM was the biggest company on the market, that meant they also had the lion's share of all software. Right. You combine this with other innovations and a solid business strategy that involved flexible prices for the products, and within 10 years, they became one of the biggest computer companies in the world. Now, they used that influence to push for a standardization of PC architecture after IBM decided to try to break compatibility, and they were successful in creating the standardization that exists to this day. Like, stuff like PCI ports in your computer exists mm. because of them. Ah. Yeah, it's wow. stuff like that. Yeah. So, incredibly important company. I cannot stress this enough. And in, by 1994, they were on the cusp of being the number one computer manufacturer in the world. Known for reliable, cost-effective computers that were compatible. Mm-hmm. Put a pin in that. Yeah. Companies were buying this, their products in droves. So... All of these new computers are now starting to get their homes with children. Disney began development on the Lion King anime storybook for PC. Now, in order to develop a game for PC, you had to make it compatible with whatever operating system that particular computer used. In the early 90s, this thankfully was easy because Windows for Microsoft Windows was a dominant OS in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And Microsoft had seen that gaming was starting to become a big thing, and they had a new graphical application programming interface uh, or API that was suited for this purpose called WinG. Alex, have you ever heard of WinG? I don't think I have. No surprise on this because it's (laughs) going to die a very quick death (laughs) for reasons that are going to become obvious in, say, 15 minutes or so. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So WinG is the predecessor to DirectX. And... How it, how it came about is that with the rise of video games, Microsoft quickly saw its promise and wanted companies to develop PC games. Mm-hmm. Now, there was a slight problem. They were already developing PC games just for the wrong operating system. They were developing it for MS-DOS or Microsoft DOS, which right. was Microsoft's previous operating system. Right. MS-DOS was accessible in Windows and for a big reason, because Windows originally just started off as basically a graphical shell for DOS. Mm-hmm. And by 3.1, they finally started to kind of make it its more bespoke thing, with Windows 95 eventually being the big break where now this is a dedicated Windows operating system, just opposed to a a fancy graphical wrapper for MS-DOS. Right. So this is a problem. Microsoft wanted people to make software for Windows, not MS-DOS. However, the reason why they were making games for DOS was, well, games actually ran at an acceptable speed in DOS. Mm. It also wasn't a complete pain in the ass to program for. Make no mistake, MS-DOS was uh, difficult to program for, but since it just had existed for such a long period of time at this point, there's a lot of documentation, people knew what its quirks were, and you could work around those quirks relatively easily. Right. But Microsoft wanted developers to move on the Windows, and after a small group of engineers coded some new drivers that made the first-person shooter game, Doom, run nearly as fast as the MS-DOS version, they realized they accidentally created a new API, which was christened WinG. So I'm gonna I'm gonna just crystal ball this a little bit and say, mm-hmm. hey, wasn't Doom intrinsically designed to be like the most optimized and well running on anything piece of software ever already? Um it was if it was, yeah, like if it was like specifically DOS and that PC could run DOS, yes. Oh, okay. 
it still was a it still was a very graphically intensive game even by 1995 like some uh, some pcs were just having difficulty with it but in fact that's the reason why it was so impressive that win g was able to do what it could do Mm, okay the problem though is that unfortunately it might as well have been a bunch of random graphics drivers that were cobbled together to form an api Mm. just because it was that right literally a Microsoft engineer just got the bunch of graphics drivers to run this well, and they went, well, can't we just extrapolate further from this? Right. What this meant, though, is that it was at best finicky to work with, and if you really wanted to make sure a program worked, you had to rigorously test every computer's hardware drivers against WinG to make sure there was compatibility. This was Mm. obviously a time-consuming process, and one that had to be done unless you risk a game either running poorly or not at all. But Alex, thankfully, the video game industry is never known to cut corners, and I'm sure there'll be n- there won't be a need to bypass a very important step. Oh, absolutely not. Yeah, Why would that ever happen? It would never happen. So let's talk about a company that's about to cut those corners. Uh, that company's called Disney. Yeah. So Disney, in order to assist with development, uh, since they were still pretty brand new at this, they subcontracted a Canadian development house called Media Station around June 1994. Around the same time, on June 24th, 1994, while The Lion King was still in private screenings, Disney announced that The Lion King animated storybook was in development for a target release of December 1994. <sighs> oh, target holiday season releases. Yeah, yeah. So they essentially had five months to develop the game, which, uh, Alex, do you think that's an adequate amount of time to develop a game? No. Hmm, yeah, no, I don't think so either. Like, I, I know for a fact that many Atari 2600 games took longer than that to develop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, other than, like, the weird, crazy ones that are like, hey, we made this in two weeks, E.T. Right. style. Yeah. yeah. You, you typically need, like, a period of time to actually, like, develop a video game. Turns out. Yeah, and they're not going to make it easy on themselves either. So the whole idea behind the Lion King animated storybook was that it's going to be animated. Mm-hmm. Kind of is in the title. Yeah. And so there was going to be a lot of like really pretty like animated sequences that were going to happen in there, taking advantage of the new CD-ROM format. Mm. So the problem is, is that there was a decision. I don't know who made it, if it was Disney, Media Station, or both, to not reuse assets from the movie. Oh. Yes. Rather, they were going to hand draw all new animation for this product. Weren't they already hand-drawing all new animation for the other video game they were making? Yes. This seems like a lot of animation to be making. Yeah. According to a Business Wire article from December 7th, 1994, before the game came out, uh, this apparently accounted for about 12,000 frames of digital animation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, needless to say, it takes a while to do all that. Yeah. Especially since it's not like those animators weren't, like, working on other things, or Disney wasn't making other animated movies around this time. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Now, the good news is that Media Station had been contracted for a reason. They actually had proprietary tools that they had created themselves for Windows. Uh, This included Wintune, that they had developed directly for Microsoft, and they had other multimedia tools to compress and play back these animation clips in a way that would fit onto a CD-ROM. So they had at least some uh, uh, some ability to do this and some experience. Right. And to be fair, they did get this game done in time for the December deadline. And this was a good thing for Disney. 
As The Lion King was released to the general public and was in the midst of being the biggest movie of 1994 and a money-making juggernaut, and it looked like it was going to continue as Compaq released its latest PC. Mm -hmm. The Compaq Presario 433 all-in-one computer was released in 1994, and while it's difficult to track down the exact public reaction, it appears to have been to great reviews. Consumers loved the sub-$1,000 price point, and despite being billed as a budget machine, it had decent power for the money, sporting an Intel 486DX2 processor and 4 megabits of RAM. Dang. It, yeah, right? It set out to not only be the perfect computer for small businesses, but perfect for the average family as well. The advertisements for this are hilarious, by the way, uh -huh. because a big thing that they advertised was that you could plug your, like, phone line into it and take calls through the computer and they're like this is our cool thing we got to show this off in every commercial <laughs> but why would you do that though why would you do that because you don't want to leave your computer ever oh okay <laughs> yeah it's i love it i love that was like a big selling point for them but i guess <laughs> to be fair the public agreed because the sales of the presario alongside other computer products uh, from compact allowed the company to become, for the first time, the best-selling desktop computer manufacturer. The company found the computer found its way into the homes of many Americans, all who had children who wanted everything to do with the Lion King. Mm -hmm. And Alex, on Christmas Day 1994, mm -hmm. many of these children were gifted the Lion King animated storybook. They happily placed the game's CD-ROM into the new Pisario's disk drive, and once they loaded the game, were met with Microsoft's infamous blue screen of death yeah. or complete crash of the operating yeah. system. <laughs> it turns out the game was unplayable, and it did not take long for angry posts to appear on Usenet, for local news to pick up on the debacle, and for Disney's customer service line, copy serve address, and email addresses to all be filled with the same accusation that they killed Christmas. <laughs> Oh, man. Oh, it's so good, Alex. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> it was just an immediate blowback of like, oh, this doesn't work at all. Mm -hmm. Your new video game doesn't work at all on the most popular computer in America. Yeah. Oh, and it's going to get hilarious because we're going to talk about why exactly it went wrong. And in fact, in order to do that, we need to approach it from two different angles. Mm -hmm. The first we got to see is how did this happen? And two, why is this so widespread? Right. And two, it feels like we've already explained it, but it's actually a little bit deeper. So we're going to start off one. How did this happen? Mm -hmm. So in order to explain this, we had to talk about in a very high level way how computers work in general. Mm -hmm. So by this point, computers had either the same or similar hardware components and could theoretically run any program provided the hardware was powerful enough to do so. As I already explained earlier with an anecdote about... about uh, the NVIDIA card. It's not necessarily true, but theoretically, this is how it should work. However, there was one thing that was often bespoke to each individual computer system or company, the BIOS files that are on the computer and the device drivers. Mm. So this is a gross oversimplification. But in short, these files, particularly the device drivers, are what allow a computer to know what hardware is on the machine and allow the operating system to control the device and do what it needs to be done. This allowed computers programs to play sounds, access the printer, or important to the story, display graphics via the video card, integrated graphics chip, or whatever happens to be on there. Now, provided these are properly coded and tested, there usually isn't a problem. 
And in the case of the Compact Presario, nothing seemed amiss since the Windows operating system would display properly. Like, you boot the computer up, it works mm. properly. Right. And other games worked fine. The problem is when a program using WinG attempted to access the video driver, it all fell apart. And this huh. is a, yeah, and this is a good distinction to make. MS-DOS works fine. Right. WinG does not. Interesting. Now, the reason for this was a very specific driver made by a semiconductor supplier named Cirrus Logic. This driver was brand new and never tested against WinG, an mm. otherwise very new graphics API. Right. And since this one driver was compatible, it was enough to crash the operating system entirely. It's honestly easy to see how this happened. MediaSource mm -hmm. had less than six months to make the game and likely had no time to test much of anything. Microsoft felt WinG was working as intended and Compaq was known for total compatibility. So of course it was going to work. It, it just had to. Right. But it didn't. And this leads us to our second issue. Why was it so widespread? So we sort of answered this earlier when we know that the Presario was a very popular and relatively cheap computer and Lion King was a very popular product. Mm -hmm. But it's a little deeper than that. So... The next part comes from Alex St. John, who is an engineer formerly at Microsoft, who later worked on DirectX and had a hand in WinG, specifically helping to sell Microsoft management on it. He was an early video game evangelist at uh, Microsoft, mm. and he was very instrumental in convincing upper management to embrace video games. And it turns out, at this time, Microsoft once again was doing whatever it could to convince developers to move on from MS-DOS and port their games to Windows. So St. John and Microsoft managed to convince Disney to develop the animated storybook for Windows. Like, they went to them and went, you should do this for PC, and he went, sure, why not? Right. St. John then turned around to Compaq and convinced them to preload the latest Presario with copies of the Lion King animated storybook uh, onto the machine. Hmm. Yeah. As Alex St. John later notes, quote, we talked Disney into putting Lion King on it by promising they were going to promote it as a Windows 3.1 product for Christmas. And later notes, quote, it shipped on a million compact Rosarios in time for Christmas, end quote. At no point did anyone at Microsoft, Compaq, Media Source, or Media Source, Media Station, or Disney in general test to see if the game would run. <laughs> the, mm, I feel like that's a little bit of an oversight. Oh, just a little bit. Just a little bit. So it should come as no surprise that there, were, there was a lot of angry people on Christmas, many of whom were dealing with their own crying children and absolutely unable to get answers on Christmas. Don't believe me? I have found an archived Usenet thread from Christmas Day <laughs> 1994, and it's 95 posts of people complaining, attempting to troubleshoot, and failing to boot the Lion King animated storybook. Ah, uh, good times. Alex, you want to hear some of these? I absolutely do. So a real fun thing is that at some point, uh, Google got a hold of all the Usenet archives and just posted it as a Google group. Ah, uh, okay. That so I'll sense. I'll link to this in the show notes because it's, it's good. It's a good and it's a good one. But um, the first is going to be an incredibly long post from a one Tim Fisher. Uh, Tim's an interesting guy. Apparently, he was the president of Pacific Fishery Biologist back in 1994. Oh, oh. well, yeah, good for him. Good for him. Yeah, I don't. I thought that was cool. Yeah. And so he talks about um, uh, the uh, Lion King CD problems. I'm writing this because I am frustrated at what I see as a hyped-up piece of software that basically should never have been released. My personal experience with this CD seems to have been repeated on Christmas Day in many households, judging from the posts I have seen on Usenet so far. In a nutshell, if you have a modern PC with good video and sound cards, it appears that the software will not install. 
I personally cannot get it to finish the video test, which locks up a quarter of the way through. One person even posted that it gets through the install and claims he doesn't have a CD-ROM drive. So there's quite a few problems with this. Like he goes and like um, talks about like all the different uh, uh, products that I was having trouble with, like ATI, Mach 32, PCI. Like this mm. wasn't just a Basario problem, I should point right. out. It was most widespread on Basario, but it affected other things like the IBM right. ThinkPad. And stuff like that. Yeah, because if they were copying IBM's architecture, then yeah, and everything got standardized at that point. Like yeah, yeah, you yeah, you would expect it to hit other configurations as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, he talked about like all the weird problems he like he I kind of ran into. So he talks also about Disney's technical support, which is really good. Um... <laughs> oh, oh, I can imagine. <laughs> oh yes. So. It's like, today, Monday, uh, December 26, 1994, I called the toll number. After about 10 redials, I finally get through. It says all tech support is busy. Sound familiar? <laughs> yeah. I wait in the queue. I rack up long distance charges, because this was back when long distance was a thing. Yep. After five minutes or so, I get kicked back into the message that announced they're closed for the holidays. We'll be back Monday, December 26 <laughs> at 8, p- 8 a.m. PST. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Disney Software BBS, a toll call, 8 likes, 14.4k. Seems like the only place besides the idiotic fax line to get te- a technical support bulletin. <laughs> Could you imagine, like, faxing somebody, like, tech support help? Oh, that sounds God. like the worst. That sounds That's, like the absolute worst. Yeah, that, that would be the worst. <laughs> it's like, okay, I'll bite, I'll call, it's busy, on Christmas Day, I try all day, it's still busy, I try again at 7am Monday, seems like a safe time, right? Nope, still busy. I try at 8, 9, 10 a.m., still busy. Beginning to see a pattern here? Either one, everyone who bought a lousy Disney program is on frantically trying to find out how to make it work, or two, it's down and nobody's bothered to reboot the server. All right, there's one more really good one I just want to read mm-hmm. here. Uh, let's see. Oh, here, yeah. Section four, my recommendations. This one's good. One, for all you poor schmucks who have disappointed children today, I suggest you take the easy way out and return to CD. It isn't worth the hassle to try to get it to run. If you're a masochist, then go ahead and try to get tech support. You should enjoy the experience. For the rest of us, buy something that works. That apparently excludes Disney CDs. Two, flood Dave Disney at, I'm not going to repeat the rest of this in case this actually still exists, with complaints. He complains to be their customer support manager. Flame the product on all CD and game related <laughs> forums. Remember when, like, trolling and making fun of things online was called flaming? That was yeah, great. Yeah, that was good. Here's my list. Rec.arts.disney, comp.sys.ibm.pc.games.miscellaneous, comp.sys.ibm.pc.soundcard.games, alt.cd-rom, alt.cd-rom.reviews, comp.publish.cd-rom.software. <laughs> BBS oh, addresses were terrible. Review bombing used to be so much work. Mm-hmm. It used to be. <laughs> if you don't like this, don't bother emailing me. All flames will be tightly ignored. If you have similar problems, then tell me about them. I am forwarding every complaint I find to Dave Disney. Poor Dave Disney had a bad day today. He had a really bad time with this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they go in here and they like talk about how um, all of this is just like an absolute, absolute nightmare of a product. And give their recommendations and try to diagnose what's going on. A few people actually figure out it is the Cirrus Logic driver. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of them even talks about, like, yeah, I'm trying to get them to, to send me an updated copy of, like, the driver, which I'm like, oh, God, how would they even do that? They must they must have had to send out, like, a floppy to, like, everybody. Right. 
Oh god, that sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> so to just to clarify that driver thing a little bit. So this was a new driver from a um you said from a semiconductor producer. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, correct. And th- this was a semiconductor used in the compact presario? My understanding, yes. Okay. But that driver was not part of uh Wingy? It was not. It was bespoke to the Compact Presario, or at least to a Compact product line. Right, okay. But the Lion King animated used Wingy. Mm-hmm. And so those two just didn't get along. Yeah, because the idea is that um, the Lion King would use Wingy to talk to these various drivers. Right, okay. And so it worked with a lot of drivers, and in a lot of others, it definitely did not. So, so- yeah. So but, then, t- really, any software using Wingy should run into this problem on that computer. It should. You're correct. So any any software using the essentially OS manufacturer recommended API mm. to talk to a driver on what is now the most popular computer in America should cause the thing to just die. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, the only thing that's really saved Microsoft here is that nobody was developing for WinG. They were developing for MS-DOS. Because <laughs> it's still what, fully what is the accessible. opposite of suffering success from success? It's like saved by failure. <laughs> Something that happens more often in the video game industry than you'd think, really. Boy, it really does, huh? <laughs> yeah, see, you can imagine what followed was a bit of a PR disaster for all these companies. Yeah, a little bit. But none more so than Disney. Test your freaking pipelines. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not surprising that Disney got the... I was about to make a really terrible pun. Well, I'm going to do mm. it anyways. Do it. The lion's share ah. of blame did not mean that, given this was a Lion King game. Disney's logo was plastered all over the game. And the fact yeah. that your average consumer didn't, or at least not initially, focus their eye on everyone else, or anyone else, really. Mm-hmm. Alex, what do you think Disney's response was to this? Uh, well, my first assumption would be just to walk away from video games forever, but clearly that didn't happen, so... No, that, that'd take another 15 years. Yeah. No, uh, I don't know, just promise refunds and blame everyone else? Well, partially correct. Actually, <laughs> technically, all that will eventually be correct, but uh. their initial response at first was just silence. They did not respond to any inquiries on a corporate level. Mm. On an individual level, as Tim Fisher found out, you might get an answer if you could get a call through to their help desk. But the problem is that they only staffed eight people. Yeah, that's not, that's not enough. That's not enough. That's not enough. Now, they were completely overwhelmed. And once the press, including the Wall Street Journal, became involved, it did force Disney to respond, and they were not particularly diplomatic. Mm, can't imagine Disney not being diplomatic. Oh, yes. Especially since the first thing they did was uh, blame Media Station. <laughs> yeah, that sounds right. Yep. They Just noted throw the contractors under the bus. Oh, yes. <laughs> What's funny is that Media Station is going to continue working with Disney after this, which I'm like, mm. that money must have been good. Yeah. But they did note that they had finished development of the product and delivered it before it was fine-tuned. Now, one might say that uh, they weren't the ones who mandated that release date, but whatever. (laughs) So, threw them under the bus. And the second thing they did is that they blamed a consumer. That old chestnut. Oh, boy. (laughs) 
So Disney noted that they likely had inadequate computers for running the product, and were to blame for not reading the box carefully enough before buying. Wait, you mean the computer that came preloaded with the software? Yep. <laughs> and also the fact that the Presario did indeed meet minimum specs for the game. Minimum specs for the game was a Intel 486 processor, which the Presario had, uh-huh. 4 megabits of RAM, which the Presario yeah. had, and a 2 times CD-ROM drive, which the Presario had. So, yeah. Okay. So, the backlash only grew. And after articles in the Detroit Free Press, the Wall Street Journal, and many, many PC hobbyist magazines, Disney began to backtrack. They upped their support staff from the initial eight that were fielding calls, up to 50. Compaq released an update to the affected driver, which, once again, I wasn't able to find out how they did this, but I yeah. bet you it was a nightmare. Yeah, almost certainly. Yeah, you're right. It probably would have just had to be a... It would have probably had to be a floppy drive that you install into the BIOS. Yeah, it probably would have been. Oh, God. Right? And by the yeah. following year... Go ahead. Oh, this is it. Yeah, you would have had to probably flash that update into the BIOS on mm-hmm. the motherboard. Ooh. I wonder how many people accidentally destroyed their computers that day. Probably more than a few. Probably more than a few. Nothing scarier than flashing your BIOS. Yep. So, by the following year, though, Disney was even offering refunds for the game if consumers still felt dissatisfied. And with that... Disney's ire at the consumer melted away. And instead, Disney focused their attention on a new target, Microsoft. Yay! (laughs) So the next bit is going to come from an incredibly good article from Shaq News, written by David Craddock called The Power of X, and part Mm. of a larger series called Bet on Black, How Microsoft and Xbox Changed Pop Culture. Incredibly good article. Obviously, I, I will link this in the show notes. Uh, that basically just kind of goes over Microsoft's ascent to the gaming industry. And the reason why I wanted to use this article is that it contains a very good interview with Alex St. John. Mm. Now, I do want to add a bit of a caveat before we get started with this. Most of the history of DirectX comes from Alex St. John himself, being one of the principal developers for it. Now, I have zero reason to think that he's lying or anything like that about anything I'm about to say. Right. But he is literally the only source. Every other like source I could find about the history of DirectX is just either like an older or a newer interview with him. Uh, it seems like nobody else really commented on it too much. And there's not really a whole lot of informative write-ups that don't heavily reference interviews with him. So once again, I have no reason to think that anything I'm about to say is inaccurate. But when it comes to like the personal recollections of somebody from like over 20 years ago, it is good to take at least one or two things. There's just a slight grain of salt. Right. Yeah, it's so weird that he's like the only source on it. Yeah, given how incredibly important it is. Right, exactly. And a big reason is because he's like the evangelist for this. He's like the hype man for it. So it sort of makes sense that he is the one who's going to be constantly interviewed about this, as right. opposed to the engineers. Right. But you know, that's just sort of how these things work. So as Disney attempted to unravel what went wrong, they immediately swarmed Microsoft. They wanted requests for information. They had constant calls with them about what was going on, the ongoing situation, and even the threat of lawsuits were starting to be floated as he attempted to quash this PR disaster. Alex St. John, the engineer and gaming evangelist at Microsoft, later remembers, quote, It was a massive PR disaster, and we all thought we were going to get fired because it was on us. We shipped it, and I talked Disney into it, end quote. Which, fair, yeah, I'd Mm -hmm. probably think I was going to get fired too. Yeah. However, one day while he was at work, 
watching as people from Disney walked around Microsoft getting as much information as they could, and flummoxed Microsoft executives were frantically trying to stave off the coming storm, he noticed one person wasn't worried. Bill Gates, the CEO of Microsoft, was more amused than anything, and supposedly <laughs> remarked to St. John, what do we do to get so much attention from a real media company? <laughs> Which that tracks. Yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> So instead of firing St. John and the other engineers responsible for WinG, he instead tasked him with solving the problem and coming up with something better. It turns out that Alex St. John had been working on something unsanctioned, alongside fellow engineers Craig Eisler and Eric Ingstrom, a graphics API they called the Game SDK, but would later be called DirectX. So this would be a good point to end the story, but I think it would be very dissatisfying if we didn't talk about DirectX, at least briefly. Mm-hmm go over its early history because it is a fascinating thing and there's there's going to be some pretty good pretty good stuff from it so let's go ahead and dive into that but let's let's start by kind of talking about uh how even it got formed up in the first place so DirectX had been in the works as a side project for about a year before it was officially greenlit by microsoft leadership in 1995 now how it got to start is a story of persistence so the story goes that in the lead up to the release of windows 95 there was a lot of excitement over the power and overall major step forward it promised for Microsoft's operating system. You see, as previously mentioned, additions of Windows OS were more or less a shell wrapped around the real operating system, which was mm-hmm. Microsoft DOS. Windows 95 represented a major step in the break between MS-DOS and Windows. MS-DOS would still be accessible, but Windows essentially would handle all the work. It would be the real operating system. Mm. DOS was just there to ensure compatibility. Mm. And it seemed all the better for it in terms of like feature set and the like. Like Windows 95 was a major step forward. Like this is where the start button comes from. Right. One area though where it wasn't a major step forward was gaming. MS-DOS throughout the years had plenty of games developed for it. Kinks worked out and in general was a solid base to program a PC game with, albeit difficult to program for. With Microsoft pushing companies towards programming for Windows as opposed to DOS, this represented a possible issue. Beyond the flawed WinG, there just didn't seem to be robust support for gaming on Windows. For Alex St. John, the, pro- the power of Windows 95 seemed exciting and a way to start anew with a more dedicated API and gaming focus that, which then would had been previously present. However, at this time, Microsoft Brass didn't feel that gaming was a priority. Now, they did have a gaming division at Microsoft, and it was successful. I had put out games such as Age of Empires, but the reality is that gaming only made up a small fraction of the profits Microsoft made as a whole, and so it just wasn't given a whole lot of attention. For St. John, though, this seemed like a major hole, mm. and he pushed for Microsoft to embrace video games in a much larger fashion, but went unheard. And finally, one day, he just kind of had enough. And after getting in contact with fellow engineers Eric Ingstrom and Craig Eisler, they all got to work, with Eisler himself leading general development of the product. They dubbed their project the Manhattan Project, and for their logo, they adopted a stylized radiation symbol. The name was chosen very purposely. Japan was the leaders when it came to the gaming industry, and this project okay. was meant to help end their dominance, much like the atomic bomb did to Japan in World okay. War II. A little tasteless, but we'll move on. Yeah. Engineers in the mid-90s weren't exactly yeah. known for their tact. Alex, do you think this caused, caused, caused any sort of controversy? Uh, which which part, exactly? 
the Manhattan Project, the stylized radiation symbol, the entire thing. Uh, <laughs> potentially. <laughs> yeah, you'd be correct. It did. Mm. Now, it's it's funny because like Microsoft nowadays denies this. Mm. Like their official line is that the, there were no issues and like the Manhattan Project name never existed. <laughs> St. John disagrees. Quote, uh. We had a glowing radiation logo for the prototype, and of course, as soon as that got out and the press covered it, it caused a scandal. Microsoft mm. PR said, you've got to change that. You cannot be using a radiation symbol <laughs> and calling this thing the Manhattan Project, end quote. Now, whatever the case, the stylized radiation symbol remained, and DirectX, once completed, was incorporated in Windows 95. That radiation symbol was used for a long time, too. I think it was until 2001 when it became mm. the more weirdly stylized green and black X that right. was its logo for like the longest time. So once it uh, was completed and incorporated into Windows 95, uh, St. John and Ingstrom got to work convincing developers to switch over to Windows as opposed to DOS. But this was easier said than done. For one, the Lion King fiasco had seriously damaged the reputation of Windows in the eyes of game developers. And it didn't help that DOS simply had a performance advantage when it came to running games over Windows. Windows, unlike DOS, was a lockdown system. It was harder for developers to take control of Windows in key ways. Mm. Now, this was good from a security and stability standpoint, but it limited how much power they could ultimately draw from each individual machine. So developers told St. John about this, and his job at this point was to take these concerns back to the OS team at Microsoft and get these restrictions lifted. In the meantime, St. John implored these various developers to make games for Windows, promising them that programming and debugging would be much easier and worth the loss in performance. So, real quick, I think it's worthwhile to talk about, in a very high-level way, what DirectX even does. Mm -hmm. So, previously, when developing for MS-DOS or using WinG, the API would allow developers to access the hardware directly, and this was everything from video card, sound card, mouse, etc. Mm -hmm. They still had to program files to interact with all the components themselves, however, which meant they had to troubleshoot every piece of software to make sure there was compatibility. So the DirectX team took a different tact, and they took inspiration from Japanese consoles such as the Super Nintendo. Like Alex St. John uh, notes, and I'm going to paraphrase this, essentially that they saw that how like the Super Nintendo was weaker than PCs. Mm -hmm. But you could also put anything in there that was compatible for it, and it would work flawlessly. Right. He saw that, yeah, any one game developed for that platform would work, and he designed DirectX with that goal in mind. Or the team did, I should say. Mm -hmm. So DirectX thus does two things. One, it provides libraries, files that are designed to handle all tasks related to graphics, audio, and other hardware-related tasks to help achieve higher compatibility. So it takes that away for the computer manufacturers. Instead of having, instead of just interfacing directly with those drivers themselves, they essentially do those drivers themselves. Right. So developers now didn't have to worry about writing and troubleshooting files related to every possible hardware configuration on the market. Now, they could if they wanted to, and some more bespoke products, particularly when you know 3D gaming starts to become sort of four, they mm -hmm. still would do this to an extent, but they didn't have to. And as long as DirectX was properly updated, they could continue having this support. Mm -hmm. This had a knock-on effect as well, because it freed up resources on the computer as well. They didn't have to constantly reference those files that are on the disk or in the program since they were just present in Windows to begin with. So cut out a middleman and gave them some extra performance boost. The second thing it did is related to the name. It gave developers limited 
but direct access to certain OS features and shut off other features of the OS when a game was running. So things like, hey, automatically full screening the game and making sure that nothing is being displayed underneath it. Mm -hmm. Like just shutting all that off. Right. This considerably freed up resources and allowed them to achieve performance similar to MS-DOS. The performance was good and the compatibility was promising. So much so that they reached out and pitched it to companies. And Alex, how many companies do you think signed up for this product? Uh, I'm going to guess like 20? Zero. Ah, oh, that's unfortunate. Yeah. No one decided to use this new API. They all stuck with MS-DOS. Hmm. This was an obvious problem. They had a well-known debacle that happened with WinG. And unless they literally broke compatibility with MS-DOS, they had no choice and no chance that they were going to get anyone to develop for Windows. So they stuck. They got an idea that if they just could get one high-profile game, mm -hmm. get it to work properly, they can convince everyone else that this would be a good product to use, a good API to use. Right. So they decided to shoot for the biggest game out there, id Software's Doom a fast-moving and still resource-intensive game for MS-DOS. Now, this was an obvious choice because mm. when they start working on the compatibility for this game, they need to get like additional developers to help them out. And so they start reaching out to different people in Microsoft, including the OS team. And one of the people they reach out to is one Gabe Newell. Ah. Uh. Yes. I, for I always forget that he started out in Microsoft. And before he became a knife aficionado and <laughs> maker of... Uh, guy behind Valve, uh, he was a little skeptical about uh, PC gaming on Windows. But after he noted that Doom was honestly installed on more, on more machines than Windows was, mm. he decided to give them a few developers to help out. So how they convince id Software to develop this game for DirectX is very interesting. Ingstrom and St. John went to id Software directly, and they were very frank with them. As St. John remembers, quote, I went and said, look, we don't know what the hell we're doing. We want to make Windows run games, and we need your support. If you trust us with the source, that is source code, to mm -hmm. your most popular games, we'll port them to Windows and hand them back to you. If you think the game runs well, you can publish it and keep all the money, end quote. So they are essentially saying, hey, we'll develop, we'll port your games for you. Right. Which, it worked. It mm -hmm. was like, we have literally nothing to lose here. Right, yeah, no, that they would have been foolish to pass up that offer. Exactly. Like, yeah, you, you've got to trust someone else with your source code, but it's Microsoft. What are they going to screw you over on? Yeah, right? Exactly, exactly. And so it signed up for this, as well as another company, Origin, did as well. Mm. And Doom's lead developer, John Carmack, handed the source code to Doom over to the team at DirectX. Which and might then... have been the hardest thing John Carmack ever had to do in his life. Oh, yes. Yep, that was his baby. This was a man who, like, literally, like, like helped program the game for the Jaguar. Cause he was that <laughs> he was that hands on with the source code. Which fun fact, the Jaguar version of that game pretty good. Huh? Yeah, it was for the longest time one of the few times you'll hear "pretty good" in association with the Atari Jaguar. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so they immediately got to work on creating Wind Doom which would later become the ultimate doom. Mm. Now, they needed to get quite a few more engineers for this task, and they recruited all across the company. And after months of hard work, 
They had a product that surpassed Doom in every way, from from performance to customizable settings, such as like increased screen resolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, even did things like uh, land support was was far better. Mm-hmm. Uh, like there was much less latency. Like it just was by all accounts an incredibly good product. So it was a massive success. Like it ended up getting released and it did very very well. And this success was so massive that they decided to hold a giant party. <laughs> uh and apparently apparently this is a have you ever heard the legacy of like microsoft's like wild parties that they would have for like software releases uh occasionally well apparently this was the start of it ah uh. so direct x is also the start of the the kind of the party culture that was at microsoft for uh a good 10 or 15 years or so before they Fair immediately enough. stopped doing that. Yeah, and then they were like, oh, maybe we shouldn't do this as a professional maybe, company. Maybe we shouldn't throw people to the fountains. Maybe the VP shouldn't be, um, maybe it shouldn't be t- uh, taking drinks from a funnel that's like three stories up. Mm. <laughs> yeah. they, they sound like, oh, they sound like great parties. <laughs> um, so yeah. Now, initially, Microsoft did not want them to hold this party because once again, they were considered kind of a pretty button up company at this time. Mm. Right. But St. John was not going to be deterred. <laughs> he had enough clout that he was able to commandeer a parking garage at Microsoft's Redmond campus. And I am 99% certain I know which parking garage it is. Yeah, I can imagine. And the party consisted of drinks, workstations where they could play Doom, all while the heavy metal band Guar played to <laughs> what I'm sure were a bunch of very confused engineers. <laughs> now... The highlights, though, were a giant haunted house themed after Doom and other games that signed on to use DirectX. And for some reason, an eight-foot-tall vagina adorned with 100 penises hanging from strings. Uh, oh, yeah, sure. Apparently that was contributed by id. <laughs> yeah, that, that sounds right. Yeah. <laughs> I It was probably taken out of Romero's personal collection. It probably was. There's apparently a funny story about a bunch of Microsoft execs who go through the haunted house and come out and see this statue. And then St. John, like, Hurley, like, runs over. It's like, hey, what'd you think of it? Like, oh, yeah, it seems pretty cool. Um, we don't know what the statue is. And he, like, tells, like, oh, yeah, it's a vagina. And I'm like, oh, neat. Like, they were very blasé about it, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know. What other reaction can you have at that point? Yeah, at that point, a vagina that big, you're just like, yeah, not rad, I guess. Yeah, okay. That might as well be there. Might as well. The main event, though, was a promotional video that played on a huge monitor. And Alex, you might have seen this video. Very, very infamous. I think I, I think I've seen it. Yeah. I will also link to this in the show notes, but it starts with a level from Doom, and in Microsoft CEO Bill Gates strolls onto the <laughs> screen wearing a Western duster or a type of long overcoat, while holding a shotgun, as he very dryly talks about why developers should move on from DOS to Windows. Halfway through, a zombie shows up and Gates blasts it with a shotgun. Deadpanning. Don't interrupt me. It's a terrible video. Yeah. And a video that nobody from Microsoft PR wanted Gates to do. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently they were like really fretting about like on the day of the shoot like, hey, we don't really think you should do this. This seems really bad. And he just got really frustrated and just like, just tell me what I need to do. And like St. John gave him a shotgun. He's like, here's your reliance. And he just kind of did it. All right. Sure. <laughs> so after the party, then vice president of Microsoft, Patty Stonecipher heard about the party and complained to Gates directly. 
Alex St. John was summoned to his office and was told by Bill Gates directly of her displeasure. St. John, certain he was about to be fired, braced for the worse. Gates simply replied, heard it was a great party, and moved on to other topics. He moved on because DirectX had done exactly what it set out to do, and it's still in use today, and it powers any PC that runs games, which is essentially all of them. Mm -hmm. And when Microsoft would enter the video game console business, they made sure to build it with DirectX in mind, and very tellingly gave their new system the name Xbox. But that's going to be a story for another time, and that's pretty Microsoft much... Microsoft has the worst naming on their consoles. They really do. From day one, it's like, okay, what is this thing? It's the Direct Xbox. Okay, what do we call it? We'll figure it out later. And then they didn't. <laughs> We're just going to keep calling it Xbox. <laughs> just keep calling it Xbox. Screw it. What's your next system? The Xbox One. Wait, what? What? <laughs> What's your system after that? The Xbox. <laughs> God. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Alex, how are you feeling? I feel, I feel good. That's a great story. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. I love it because it's it's a, such a surprisingly not well-known story. Like, a lot of the facts mm -hmm. in it are often wrong. Like, yeah. everything to, like, how it came about to the exact game that was involved. Like, Yeah, like, I'd always heard it was the, the platformer Lion King game. Yeah, but it, it isn't. It isn't. It's the other one. Yeah. Yeah, like even the um the really good article that we referenced uh, about the um about DirectX with the interview of uh, Saint John in it, like the screenshots they have of it are the MS DOS version of the Lion King, which yeah, yeah, that game never came out for Windows, so it huh. was it definitely was not that. A lot of those angry Usenet posts are definitely all like Lion King animated storybook, animated story. right? Yeah. Which uh, side note, I believe came out on Mac at some point. It probably did. I, I would believe that. Yeah. Um. And like Media Source or Media Source, Media Station would go on to continue doing those games. Like, mm -hmm. uh, like there's a, like an Aladdin storybook that came out around the same time that actually is mm -hmm. well received. And like eventually they would do like Pixar storybooks. Yeah. Um, they probably did like the Toy Story. Mm -hmm. They indeed uh, did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like, yeah, it, it's kind of funny, like how not well known, like what game is in it, like to the point that like. There were multiple times I actually had to go back and like redo my research because like somebody mm -hmm. would insist it was the like platformer and it's like no I'm pretty sure they're wrong and <laughs> but right. yeah um, I do also have to give props to Bill Gates for you know seeing the situation mm -hmm. and r having sort of the just the presence of mind to realize okay these guys messed up and I could fire them but then I'd have nobody to fix the problem. Mm -hmm. So maybe I just have them fix the problem instead. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And like it's and honestly, it's a very prescient thing to do because like a big reason why Apple is going to have such trouble in the personal computer market from this point forward is that, you know, they're not going to embrace video games. Right. Microsoft is. Mm -hmm. And like, I'm not going to sit here and say that's the main reason why people have like Windows operating systems on their computer, but it's a pretty big reason. Yeah, it's going to make was, them a lot of money. It was a real competitive edge for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's very telling that, like, once Apple got into the iPhone and whatnot, they made sure games were on there. Yeah. And it worked out really well for them. Yeah, so, it yeah, it, good on Gates for that. Like, uh, there's not many times I'm going to say good on Gates. <laughs> 
But in this case, yeah, he, he seems to like just have like kind of a calm presence of mind this entire time. Just like, eh, you know, it'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you held a giant party where essentially my second in command was incredibly, incredibly pissed at you. <laughs> eh, whatever. Yes. <laughs> these things happen. Yeah, these things happen. Whatever. Yeah, it's it's a fun story. It's a fun story. And I'm really happy I was able to tell it. Yeah. <laughs> Alex, you have any final thoughts? Mm, I'm still baffled by the idea that three companies basically ended up in a cross-promotional deal where they as good as sold their products as a package deal, and no one tried to turn the damn thing on just once before it <laughs> shipped. Right? Yeah. I, like, just to try it, just to see what it's like, no like, one was even curious to play it. Yeah, there had to be one person there, right? Like, the only way I could feel like this this slipped through is the, the Presario that I mentioned was not the first mm -hmm. Presario. There was a um, right. There was a Presario that was released the previous year. I think the three forty four. Um, I, I forget what what the number was, but like maybe that worked just fine with WinG, and they went, "Hey, I'll be yeah. fine," because it had similar specs from what I understand. It could run the game. But, um, no, yeah, no you, you would think got like the first one off the production line or something to be like, yeah, look at it here. Let's boot it up like nothing. No. Yeah. And I think that just speaks to how close the time frame was for everything, because like the game yeah. was complete just a few weeks before it went to print. And it like compact had such a sterling reputation for compatibility. Like, yeah. It, I could, everybody everybody did something that happens way too often in um in the computer industry and software in general. They just trusted mm. it was going to work. Yeah. And yeah, then it didn't. So. Yeah. Uh. The damn thing came pre-installed. It did. It did. You would I'd... think that means someone would have had to install it at least once manually. Mm-hmm. It makes me wonder, like, what exactly, how exactly it was. And this is something I couldn't mm -hmm. confirm. Like, was it just, like, the CD came with the, the system? Right, right. Or was it, yeah, was it actually pre-installed on there? Because, like, installation back then was, like, an hours-long process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I wonder. I wonder. But um, I, I think uh, one other crazy thing to know is how um, this was such a major kerfluffle for everybody. Mm. That it ended with Microsoft still being the dominant, op having the dominant operating system. Right. Disney still making a ton of video games after this and profiting from it. Mm -hmm. And Compaq still being the number one computer manufacturer in the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is like, yeah, no, of course. That's how this yeah, works. No, some, Sometimes PR disasters just don't really make that much waves. Yeah, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> but yeah. This is a good story, and hopefully, hopefully you at home will enjoy this. And just when you take a look at your computer and see how it runs, basically whatever you throw at it, relatively well, you'll be happy to know that. Oh, thank God it's not 1994. And with that, I think we're gonna go ahead and bring this podcast to a close. Oh, one last note: uh, Ultimate Doom is available on Steam, and it freaking rules. Oh yes, yeah. Uh, th that version of Doom is very good for a reason. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, there's it's. I, I definitely do highly recommend it. There's there's a yep. reason why it did very it, well for Microsoft. It, it actually is the ultimate version. It's mm -hmm. kind of the best. Yeah, to the point that when it would come out for Xbox for the Xbox and whatnot, it was actually an <laughs> inferior product, oddly enough. Yeah. Yeah. Funny how that works. 
Yeah. But yeah, Alex, thanks for joining me on this as always. Of course. And of course, everyone out there, if you enjoy uh, this particular podcast, you can find more at ftp.podbean.com or search for Fallen Through Plot Holes on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast, uh, including sort of, even including places I didn't even sign up for. They just took our <laughs> podcast, threw it on there. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. which, hey, you know, saves me the trouble. Yep. <laughs> and of course, if you do really want to... En- like get the word out and want to make sure other people listen to it. We definitely wouldn't mind. Talk about it on social media. Annoy your friends about it and tell them about this cool podcast where occasionally we talk about video game plot lines. We'd really appreciate it. Yeah. But, with, but with that, I'm going to go ahead and sign off. Take care, everybody. Bye.